Hey everybody, welcome to our Thursday gathering, which is now on Friday. <laughs> and so I do, this, those of you who know, I do this totally geeky thing at the beginning, I have to do it, um, where everybody has to turn on their camera for just a second and say hi. So I realize that there are some humanoids out there. Thank you, so nice. Yeah, this is great. One of these days, one of these days, we can do something live and in person again. This is really great. Cool, excellente, love the backdrops. Excellent, cool, good deal. So for those of you who may be new, we started doing this, I don't know how many weeks, 40 weeks ago? With the start of the virus, no idea it was gonna go this long, but people are still showing up, I have fun, so we do it. They're very informal, that's why I like them. I basically don't prepare a thing, I just show up. Um, and we talk about things, good questions are always sent, so this is the place to come and ask questions and have a Q&A discussion type things. Um, but I do wanna say a couple things about events coming up. I'm starting to enter my kind of seasonal spring teaching thing, so there's a few gigs coming starting tomorrow morning. My first event of the year with uh, a center out of Vermont called Karma Chilling. I'm doing my Lucid Dream Yoga event. Um, so you can still register for that. Andy's gonna put up the link. And this one's a little bit different. I, I, I'm gonna be riffing on something that I haven't really taught on before, um, hardly at all, um, which is a, a, a deeper dive on this whole liminal dreaming thing. Um, in my kind of cartography of the nocturnal meditations, which I riff a lot on, there are five of these practices. The, the classic ones were uh, lucid dreaming, dream yoga, sleep yoga, bardo yoga. But I've since inserted, uh, because I've been doing a little bit more research and doing, um, just trying to articulate the structure of liminal dreaming more. And so I've, I've developed this new riff on it. Um, with practices to actually work with it. And the reason I, I mentioned this is because, and the reason I'm doing it is because lucid dreaming, um, those of you who try it, so much is promised, so little delivered because it's hard. I mean, lucid dreaming is not easy. And so um, liminal dreaming is pretty cool because anybody can do it. It's pretty easy. It's that liminal means threshold. It's that kind of almost like bardo dreaming where you're not awake, you're not asleep, no man's land. Kind of thing and you, for most people they go they just kind of crash out non-lucidly and then like whatever but with some familiarity with the liminal space and then actually with liminality altogether the the principle of liminality is really interesting liminal beings liminal experiences liminal places uh really interesting deeply connected to kind of bardo stuff um, and so with the research I've been doing, there's a way to more officially practice liminal dreaming. Harvest creativity, with which Thomas Edison and Salvador Dali did. I mean, they both came up with really cool ways to kind of farm or troll that um, Bardo space, <clears throat> uh, kind of a, a foam or perception. Pema Chodron talks about it as a plasma of mind. It's great description of it. And so you can cultivate a lot of creativity it can arise when the ego goes offline. And so this is what I riff on 
that, that I think is pretty cool because when we fall asleep, what happens is the, the egoic structure, ego narrative literally comes undone, falls apart. And, and that's what actually happens in that liminal space. That's why it's, it's gappy and it's like, you know, you're kind of all over the place. It's just like this kind of, um, you know, whatever collage of experiences. And it's a really interesting place to observe the mind and to, to actually observe how the narrative of ego goes offline as you quite literally fall apart. And then the reason it's cool is because when we wake up in a dream, whether lucid or non-lucid, then the narrative structure is actually reestablished. So by paying attention to this deconstruction as we fall asleep, we can therefore start to glean a little bit more lucidly uh, what's called ahamkara, I-making, I um, I, the pronoun I, me-making, how, how ego is actually constructed. So anyway, this is a new riff. I haven't done this before. So you can still join us and you'll put up the link for that. That starts tomorrow. Um, blah, 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 blah. We're going to be posting. Uh, I actually was interviewed by this gal a while back on, uh, on sleep yoga related stuff. Tracy Stanley, cool lady, really cool gal. And so she sent me the link from the interview when she interviewed me on this topic. So we'll be posting that probably within a couple of days. Uh, we're starting our meditation, our weekly meditation study group. Well, I guess it's not a study group, our meditation group this coming Monday. And I'm going to, I have to give myself a little bit of flexibility time-wise because I, I'm going to be starting actually another class I'm attending and also teaching in um, that starts at seven. So originally we were going to do this at seven mountain time, but because I've got this other class um, for a little while, we're going to be doing this starting at six o'clock uh, mountain standard time this coming Monday. This is a new edition. Haven't done this before. And so every week on this time, either myself or some really gifted people will come online, give formal meditation instruction, um, do a little practice together, and then have Q&A discussion only about practice. No other questions will be allowed, haha, <laughs> will be taken. So I'm excited about that because uh, a lot of people have been asking about it. There's so many different practices that we can go through. Um, I'm going to kind of start at the infrastructure with a uh, shamatha, referential shamatha, and then progress into a whole different series of practices. So I'm kind of excited about that. Um, book study group still going on on Tuesday night. I don't know what, we're like halfway, we're more than halfway through the book on that. This is on my latest book, Dreams of Light. Actually, not my very latest. This is the one I published in August. And we've just entered my favorite part of the book, uh, The Illusion of Externality, which is all about the science uh, the physics, the neuroscience, the cognitive science, anthropology, developmental psychology that supports this view that the world is illusory, that the world really is dreamlike. Um, actually, my favorite part of the book, because the, the science behind it is kind of jaw dropping. So you can still join us for that. And other little goodies are coming up. But, you know, that's it. Um, also, my latest new thing here that I think is worth doing, we'll do this again too, is you know, it's very easy to take this kind of meditative spiritual stuff and use it as a form of escape. So my big thing these days is spiritual bypassing, spiritual materialism, escapism. 
And some of the questions were a little bit about that today. So this will tie in. So I think it's always nice to connect to, uh, you know, the world circumstance altogether, so, because otherwise, you know, these teachings are really very, uh, often, as I often say, they're very precious. They really are, I think. But the near enemy of that is they become too precious in the pejorative sense. They become removed, um, you know, not in contact with reality, in, uh, ineffectual, and that sort of thing. And, and so I think it's certainly my own practice every day, I do this sort of thing. But we can spend 30, 30 seconds to a minute just doing the sending and taking, it's called Tonglen, where just for a minute, we just acknowledge what we're doing here. Uh, yes, it's about self-improvement in a certain way, uh, until you improve yourself out of existence. <laughs> Fundamentally, it's not about self-improvement, it's about self-transcendence, but you get the idea. You know, a lot of this we do for ourselves, but we do it for ourselves um, as a stepping stone to benefit others. And so for a minute, it's always helpful to just connect. Like, why are we really doing this? We're doing this to help the planet, to help other sentient beings, uh, animal forms, life forms altogether. So, for the next 30 seconds, minute, every in-breath, breathe in all the hardship, the suffering, the pain in the world. Every out-breath, shine out, radiate, breathe out, share, offer all the light, the goodness. As a way, actually, to be a benefit to this planet. Okay. There we go. You can't get enlightened without others. You need others. So we need to stay connected. So a um, number of really cool questions came in. Um, some of them just came in. So I'll have to look at those real quick, but here's some of the ones that were submitted. I'll respond to the written ones. Then we'll open it up for live Q and A. You can enter your questions in the chat column or is I, Totally prefer it if you actually come online and ask it live, because then I can kind of connect to you a little bit more. So um, I'll get to all these. So this is from uh, Kathy. <clears throat> Has Andrew recommended any books or practices for sleep yoga? I know he said sleep yoga is not the same as yoga nidra. Also, do you know any lamas in the East or West who can perform the 49 day bardo prayer? Uh, okay, so I have recommended books on sleep yoga. There's not much out there. Um, the best by far, in my opinion, the very uh, last section of Tenzin Wangyal Rinpoche's book, The Tibetan Yogas of Dream and Sleep. He has a really good section on sleep yoga there. 
Nam kai norbu rinpoche, rinpoche. Nam kai norbu rinpoche. Um, Nyingma, but um, mostly he's kind of an independent Nyingma Lama who died somewhat rec uh, recently. He has a book, I think it's called uh, Dream Yoga and the Practice of Natural Light or something like that, uh, edited by Michael Katz. Uh, it's okay. It's, it's okay. It's not great, but it's okay. Um, there's very little out there. Um, I have a chapter in my first dream yoga book on sleep yoga. Um, outside of that, that's kind of it. I mean, you can find other hits on it, not entire books, but any book that talks about the six yogas of Naropa or the six bardos has a chapter on uh, sleep yoga or also called luminosity yoga in Tibetan. So other books that come to mind where you just get a chapter, uh, Pondok book, Mind Beyond Death. It's on the six bardo teachings of Padmasambhava. You'll find a chapter there. That, that one's really good. Um, Gyalcho Rinpoche uh, did a book on the same text by Padmasambhava called Natural Liberation, translated by Alan Wallace. That one's really good. Um, and that's kind of it that, that I'm aware of. If there's something else out there, I'm not aware of it. So yeah, it's not the same as yoga nidra. It's the same word, nidra is sleep in Sanskrit, but yoga nidra and sleep yoga in the Tibetan world are not the same. Do I know any lamas in the East or West who can perform 49 day bardo prayer? Yeah, I do. Um, but here's a question I might have for you, Kathy, is, is why not do the prayer yourself? You have as much, you know, inherent power as the lamas do, if you just touch into that. Um, so empower yourself and do the 49 day bardo prayer yourself. Um, this is not in any way dismissed, doing it with a, having another teacher do it for you, for sure. Personally, what I would do is I wouldn't commission, because you usually have to have a teaching offering gift for this. Um, you know, these individuals need to make a livelihood. So, um, and I can give you some names, but I would have them do a POA. I wouldn't have them do the 49 day bardo prayer. Personally, that's my preference. Uh, I would commission them, so to speak, to do uh, what's called the iron hook of compassion. In terms of the 49 day bardo prayer, I would do that yourself. Um, seriously, really. Uh, and the way it works is, you know, here's the trick is I know a ton of lamas, but how you can access them and get them to do it I, that's tricky. I can't just give you like their backdoor email address or, or text. I can't do that. So I know a bunch of them, but do I know a bunch of them that can actually do that for you? That's a little bit trickier. You have to do a little legwork there. Um, the Landa Bodhi, Pono Rinpoche's community. I mean, any, any active Lama in the West, and I'll, I'll just ping off a couple that I have just tremendous respect for can do this. I cannot give you the logistics for how to do it. Um, that's beyond what I can present here. But Zong Tsar Kensei Rinpoche, Pono Rinpoche, Sogyan Rinpoche, Mingjia Rinpoche. You know, Andy, can you think of any others? Bakchak Rinpoche, I don't know if he does it. Um, probably checking Nima Rinpoche, Khandra Rinpoche. There's a lot of people who do this. The trick is, 
you know, getting them to do it. That's, that's not so easy for me to answer. Um, and beyond the scope, I don't, I mean, I have these contact informations, but I can't, unfortunately can't share them in this setting. So maybe that would help. But, you know, really, and I mean this, um, you, you have at the, same, at the same level of power that they do. You just have to believe it. You have to take refuge in that same quality of mind that they have simply stabilized. It may not be as stable for us as it is for them, but we have those same capacities. And so, especially if you have a connection to someone, kind of karma connection, you have as much power as the llamas do, really. Okay. From Jane, I have taken pain medication as I have a chronic pain condition. Osteoarthritis, I have to take tramadol. Yeah, I know that drug pretty well. Big struggle to regain energy. Anyway, looking for advice and guidance. I'm wondering if the drugs can make lucidity more difficult. I'm not convinced they do, but maybe there's a bit of a problem from them. I want to devote as much time as possible to getting my dreaming back on track and moving to the deeper practices, where to start. I like to venture into sleep and bardo practices if you think that's a good idea. Okay, yeah. So, you know, the tramadol, all these meds, yeah, this is tricky because they're all idiosyncratic. I mean, generally these meds do have an effect for sure. Uh, you can call it a side effect, but you know, everything's an effect, period. So generally these kind of agents can in fact suppress realm um, this is where you need to just talk to your, to your doc who prescribed it and say, how does this drug affect my dreams? And then from there, you know, you have to make some decisions, but a lot of agents do. I mean, a ton of these agents actually do affect dreams. Um, so then it's a matter of, you know, working with it. Can you get by without it? Can you try something else? Um, Taking these, I, I always direct people quite specifically back to the prescriber, ask them for specific guidance on how it's going to affect your dreams because it absolutely positively can. Um, I want to do it as much time as possible to get it back on track. That's awesomely cool. Um, lots of ways to do that, Jane. You know, I mean, there's a ton of literature out there. Obviously, I'm here to you know tell you a little bit about my sillinesses. So within the community of what we offer here, you know, joining nightclub is really a powerful way. Um, Foundations of Lucid Dreaming course that we have is, is, I think, a pretty solid course. The Harbinger Press book that I just published in uh, December, I think, is fairly okay. The Karma Cholin program that starts tomorrow is okay. There's a bunch of stuff coming up online that I'm offering. Um, you know, I think those are more or less okay. <laughs> so, you know, where to start? Um, those places are really good to start, or the work of Stephen LeBears, Charlie Morley, um, Claire Johnson, Daniel Love. There's some really great people out there doing really cool stuff. So, um, you know, in terms of like having a structure, a community, a format, step-by-step -step thing, um, I think what Nightclub has to offer with all our guests is actually worth looking at. Uh, you like to venture into sleep and bardo if I think it's a good idea. I think it's a great idea. You know, sleep and bardo practices are part of these nocturnal meditations and they're all working with just really kind of wondrous subtle states of mind. So I would, you know, I, I always recommend people start slow and easy, um, have fun with it, enjoy it. Don't set the bar too high, don't be too ambitious. And then just see what speaks for you. Um, trust your own experience. 
and you know trust your dreams trust uh, serendipity trust coincidence and see what kind of just pops up as you start to get in so jane if you're if you're on and have a couple more questions um around this i'm happy to to discuss or entertain this further but that's what comes to mind okay all right so this is from peter uh, what could help me to cultivate a greater true appreciation for the guru yoga devotional practices this is a longer question so i'm going to just pause in the middle and answer these little things as i read them uh, well, doing them, if they speak to you, um, bhakti yoga, guru yoga, if you have a connection to devotional practices, the way to cultivate them is literally just do them. Uh, if they speak to you, if they don't speak to you, don't worry about it. Um, this is just, you know, guru yoga, bhakti yoga, devotional prayer. It's just one of many different kind of ways to work with the whole kind of spiritual thing. Um, so back to you. Is it perhaps my Western upbringing that makes it hard for me to accept that ultimately I won't be able to fathom the depths of the Dharmic wisdom without tying that eventuality to a kind of ultimate reverence and ardor for a spiritual teacher? Uh, well, in all candor, Peter, yeah, I'd say probably. I'd say that's probably true. And it was the same for me too, um, totally. I mean, I have tremendous, I'm not dissing it, I have tremendous respect for, for the Catholic tradition, but I was bruised. I, I wasn't abused, but I was, you know, it just didn't speak to me. So um, I think you're probably a little bit like me that I, I didn't, you know, I had this fierce independent streaks, like I don't need anybody. I can do this by myself. Totally true. Absolutely true. I mean, the Buddha pretty much did it by himself under the Bodhi tree. Obviously he had a little bit of help on the front end. So here's the idea the, the you know, the whole guru principle thing, if it, it speaks to you, super powerful. Um, in Tantra, Vajrayana, you know, those traditions, it's critical. You can't really do Vajrayana Tantra level stuff without um, devotion and guru yoga. It just doesn't work. It doesn't work as well. But that doesn't mean you're, you know, it's a deal breaker. You know, what, what guru yoga does, um, it just, you know, harnesses the most powerful force in the universe. So that's no small thing, right? <laughs> Which is love, you know, love, the most powerful force in the universe. Guru yoga, bhakti yoga in Hinduism, uh, Christian devotional prayer, Sufi. I mean, the, all the great traditions have this, right? It just harnesses the most powerful force in the universe. Um, so if it speaks to you, go for it. If it doesn't, really, don't worry about it because the ultimate guru um, is within. You know, the provisional guru, that's, these are just training wheels. You know, there, there are four types of guru, um, outer guru, physical form, person. The guru is the teacher, the, uh, the, the teaching, I should say, the dharma. What's called symbolic guru, which is the phenomenal world. And then the most, you know, they're all pointers towards the ultimate guru, which is, is really where it all comes down to. And any authentic living guru worth their salt will tell you that. You say, hey, I'm just a stepping stone. Not me. I'm not a guru. Trust me. But a real guru, they're just a stepping stone to the ultimate guru within. That's the most important thing is realize you are just like with the earlier question, you already have these capabilities. 
Um, and so the outer guru just helps you recognize that, remember it. But if it doesn't speak to you, you don't, you don't fundamentally need it. It's just really helpful for those to whom they relate. I don't mean to sound proud here, but aren't I already the Buddha? Yeah, man, you are, but you don't believe it. <laughs> That's the problem. You're the Buddha, but you don't believe it. I'm a Buddha, but I don't believe it. I'm not kidding. They say at the very highest levels, it's an issue of confidence, what's called divine pride, the pride of the deity, the pride of the Buddha. You are the Buddha. If you have awareness, you just have to recognize that awareness as the Buddha. So you already Buddha. Um, so you don't believe it. And most of us don't believe it. So then we have to go through all these things called the path, guru yoga, whatever, to someday wake up and said, oh my God, it's, it's totally true. I've been the Buddha all along. I just never knew it. Really, no joke, no joke. In fact, I have to share the story. My dear friend, Ken Wilbur, when I, before I got to know him, uh, he uh, was teaching a, a public thing. And I asked him this question about, you know, like what's like your ultimate teaching kind of thing. And this guy blew me away because, you know, he's like a super intellect scholar. I thought he was going to riff off some like dharmic equation. And he said, just, you know, without uh, missing a beat, he said, well, just hug the person. And I said, so what's your, what's the, you know, your, the summit of all your teaching, Ken, <laughs> right? And he blew me away. He said, hug the person on either side of you and realize you're hugging the deity. You're, hug you're hugging the Buddha. I was blown away. So it's totally true. What can, so back to you, what can someone bestow on me that I don't already possess? That I am not already? Nothing. They can't. I would appreciate an answer that makes sense, uh, that makes use of the analogy apprenticeship. Thank you. Okay. Well, uh, if I can speak with a little bit of candor here, um, Peter, um, there, there are three types of containers that when they talk about a student, and again, this is not a criticism, but there are um, several types of containers for, for blessing, because there really is something with blessing if you believe in this. Many people in the West, um, and I was this way for many, many years, it's like um, an upside down cup or take a glass, put it upside down, right? You pour all the water on top of it, nothing goes in. So in order for the blessing and the devotional energy to work, this is a two-way street, man. If you are not open to it, it doesn't matter. You know, a nuclear-powered guru won't do squat for you <laughs> if your cup is upside down. So then what, what the path is, again, if this track feeds you, and it may not. And if it doesn't, then the more scholarly, academic, majamaka approach could be your baby. That's great. That's why there's so many different paths. But since you're talking about the guru thing, you know, in order for the guru thing to work, you got to turn the, the glass right side up for one thing. Because otherwise, I mean, I mean, no kidding, the historical Buddha, Shakyamuni, could be living with you 24-7. And it wouldn't, it wouldn't make a difference, man. It wouldn't get through to you. Um, and not you, this is a generic you, because the cup is upside down. So you got to turn the cup upside up. That's the devotional part. That's where you have to be a receptacle for these blessings. Otherwise, no go. And then the other analogy or the use here is you're not even 
turning it upside down is enough, but you got to make sure there's no leaks in it and that the container is pure. Because otherwise, if you pour it in and there's holes in it, it's just going to pour right out. Or if you pour it in in the container that's stained, you're going to stain it. So the path is about, the devotional path is about turning the, guru, the, the glass right side up, cleaning it out, sealing all the holes. Then you can do what's literally called Abhisheka, empowerment, where they, they pour the blessings into you. But um, it has to, you have to do your part. You know, it's like falling in love with a person. You know, this is a two-way street. So if that doesn't speak to you, then, um, you know, bhakti yoga, guru yoga just may not be your thing. And that's cool. Then you do something else. But if you want to do it, you know, this, is the, the, this notion of guru um, and devotion is a big deal, complicated. So much charge material here because there's potential for so much abuse. This, this is a real hornet's nest topic, but in the briefest sense, something like that, amigo. Important question, by the way. Okay, from Amy. Is it normal to have the same dream every couple of years? I had this experience during my childhood. Uh, yeah, it's normal because it's normal for you. <laughs> really, this is so important. We shouldn't measure ourselves up against other people. Um, and we, don't we always do this? I mean, aren't we, like, aren't we like always measuring? I have this little, I used to have this little kick when I first joined the health club, you know, kind of the health club syndrome, right? You go into the health club and you just like, you're constantly just like checking everybody out. At least I used to, I've transcended that. <laughs> We're always measuring ourselves against other people. So Amy, if, it's, if this is your experience, it's normal for you. If you're not hurting yourself and you're not hurting somebody else, um, I understand what you're saying. So I'll, I'll try to be a little bit more uh, kind of normal in my response, <laughs> but it's normal for you. Um, recurrent dreams are super common of, of, of many different types. Same, same one over and over, days and days, weeks, same time. So what you're saying here, yeah, it's, it's normal, Amy. So. Um, I can confirm that you are a normal human being. Like, who am I to say, right? Okay. So a couple more uh, from Anisha, a question for Andrew. Thank you for uh, blah, blah, blah. Thank you for that. I completed reading Reggie Ray's book you were talking about last month. Yeah, so Reggie Ray is a cool guy. He's my bud, lives 10 minutes from me. He's, he's one of the best writer, scholar, practitioners for the inner yogas, for working with body on the path. I, I think his work is brilliant here. He's, not, he's published four books on this topic, starting with Touching Enlightenment, which I still think is his best. Um, I've read them all. So I completed uh, the book you talked about last month about how we Western meditation practitioners feel disembodied in our breath as an object of meditation, even after practicing for decades. I was really struck by what you said and wanted to know a little bit more. Reggie presents some somatic, some presents somatic descent practices that can be done lying down. I'm also wondering if this can be integrated with our dream yoga sleep meditations. Oh yeah, absolutely, for sure, totally. Well, there's a lot to say here. When I do my deeper, when I do my week-long retreat programs, I didn't do it last time. Um, but very often I, I do a whole series, and I, I really, I'm gonna start doing more of it, where I work with um, these inner yogic practices in a slightly more vigorous way using practices uh, 
They're called my uh, body training, Lujong, kind of vigorous motions that are designed, um, as is what Reggie's doing, all of it's designed to um, basically um, wake up the body, wake up into the body, because it's just not your mind that's lucid or non-lucid. Mind and body, are they're not the same, but they're also not different. In fact, your, your body is your unconscious mind. And so by working with your body, you're working with your mind, whether you know it or not. And as you start to wake up your body with yoga, with Reggie's work, with, with these more active inner yoga practices, it's, it's, uh, it is absolutely positively a way to bring about lucidity, not only in the body, in it, but also in the mind. So uh, in fact, I hope to get Reggie on. I'd love to interview him about this because the more I read his work, the more I realize, oh my gosh, this is just so tied into these nocturnal practices. Because again, when, when we work with these subtle dimensions of mind with these nocturnal meditations, we're, we're entering these really subtle dimensions of awareness, consciousness that have subtle body correlates, right? So you have the outer body supports outer gross mind. That's where mind equals brain. But then you have a subtle body that supports a subtle dreaming mind. And then you have a very subtle body that supports a very subtle sleeping mind. So when we fall asleep, when we're doing, when we're dying, when we go into these really deep meditation states, we're actually entering these deep inner bodies at the same time that we're entering the consciousnesses that are um, correlative to them. So you work, it's a bi-directional process. You're working with the same thing. So, um, this is super important because then when we do these yoga practices, outer yoga, inner yoga, super subtle inner yoga practices, you work with that subtle body, you are working to cultivate and support subtle states of mind, for sure. That's what Tantra is all about. Yoga Nidra does this to some extent, uh, to connect it to the other one, but Reggie's work goes a lot deeper. Okay, so a little bit more on the question. Do you know of any audio books with such guided somatic meditations? Yeah, Reggie's done them. I mean, I'm pretty sure virtually every one of his books has links to where he guides you through these practices. Pretty sure about that. Would you please share any suggestions on how we could go about exploring body work? Absolutely. So again, I would read all of Reggie's books, four of them. Uh, Plus, you know, here's the one I read recently. I'm gonna to try to get this gal on. I think I might've mentioned it. It's, the book is, is called Sound Medicine. It's a, it's a double, uh, double entendre on the word sound, sound medicine. It's written by Kuri Shadari. She's a MD neurologist, Ayurvedic physician, and also a Siddha medical doc. And this book is really good. Um, she talks a lot about chakras and mantras and inner subtle stuff. And I, I read it and I said, oh my God, I got to talk to this gal. Um, because this is, the, this is the kind of stuff, again, even using mantra. Mantra works with subtle body to open the channels. And so when you open the channels, you're also opening your mind. It's the same. So Reggie's work, I, I would recommend most importantly, just do it. It's like the guru yoga thing. Do it. I mean, there's something about the Nike thing. Just do it, right? Do Tai Chi. Um, do Qigong. Do Lujong, uh, you know, but also Yantra, it's called, that's another dimension of practice. It was called Yantra Yoga, Trokor. Massage, I mean, all this stuff 
read the work of Eugene Genlin if you're a little bit more academically oriented. He was a really brilliant body worker psychologist, um, very smart guy. His work on focusing, and he has a really good book on dreams, let your body interpret your dreams. David Rome, uh, I'm not, you know, subtle body stuff. Uh, I'm not that familiar with like Feldenkrais and, and these other systems, um, but I'm a huge fan of, of inner yogic body work, period. Um, and there's more of that coming out. So something like that, Anisha, hopefully that's helpful. David, David W. So this is another long one. I'll try to break it up. How can, we do prop, how can we do proper transformation when our meditations are almost all about people and our relation to each other? Yeah, I read this, David. I'm not quite sure what you mean here, my friend. So if you're listening, maybe you can come up and say something because I, I, I just don't quite know what you're asking here. Um, what immediately comes to mind, just guessing, is that you know meditation altogether is about improving your relationship to this to the display of mind the display of reality um, starting with both inner and outer phenomena so they're you know working with self it's almost a little bit like the body thing by working with yourself you eventually may not be doing it directly at first but eventually you will be working with others um, because you realize that when you're working with your mind, you're fundamentally working with the structure of the heart mind of everybody. But I'm not sure what you're asking in this first part. So if you're on and can help me with that, help me understand your question. So back to David's question, what can we do about this as groups? Again, it's not entirely clear what you're saying, but what comes to mind is that you know you can harness the power of group meditation to benefit others. Instead, the classic texts say that when you practice, and again, I'm not even sure this is what you're asking, but when you practice with a group, the power of your practice is multiplied in direct proportion to the size of the group. Um, so when Sharon Salzberg was last in Halifax at a public talk, I had a question, but and politely but directly challenged her with how she could teach about limitless love when all of her examples were human-centric. Yeah, good for you. Um, yeah, it shouldn't just be anthropomorphic, anthrocentric. It should be polycentric. We should be directing it towards not just all human beings, all sentient forms, the planet itself, the universe. But we start with ourselves. Um, that's what comes to mind here, you know. Kind of have to start cleaning up here before we can clean up the world. Because otherwise, how do we know if what we're doing is really a benefit? How do we know, can we centrifuge out our projections, our hopes, our fears, what's actually really happening. So that's why you have that, the Theravada, Hinayana, so to speak, before the Mahayana. That's why that preparatory practice tradition, eh, that's a tricky thing to say. That's why starting with ourselves is so important so that you can um, you know, kind of clean up your own stuff. So back to David, she agreed that this is a valid issue, but she also said that people want teachings also said that people want teachings about people. When you speak to Sharon, can you please ask, sorry, I, I, I don't know if I did that. Uh, when you speak to Sharon, can you please discuss this further with her and with us today and later? Has this thing really been on the queue that long? I haven't answered this over all these weeks. Sorry, David. Andy, why didn't you bring this up earlier? 
Sorry, David. <laughs> it's Andy's fault. Uh, so actually, David, if you are there, instead of me just kind of stumbling and tripling over, over your question that I'm not completely understanding, <clears throat> if you are there, my dear friend, please come on and let's talk about this. Because um, it's, just, it's just simply not clear to me. So I will give you a chance to do that. I know a couple came in here. And then we will open it up to everybody. Okay. Here's from Sally. I keep coming back to the following thought. Even with all the Tibetan Buddhists meditating every day for hundreds of years, they did not stop the Chinese from taking over Tibet. I don't want to leave the discussion. Does that mean this discussion group? Not sure what you mean there. I don't want to leave the discussion. I get a lot out of it, but I keep thinking that meditation won't stop anyone wanting to take over this country with violence. Yeah, it probably won't. And is it supposed to? I mean, how's meditation supposed to do that? Here, it's a little bit like, yes, this is a good question actually, Sally. Um, here's my take on this. Uh, you know, it, it's a little bit of like, a little bit of like, yeah, this is a good question, actually. It, you know, it's a little bit like what I mentioned at the outset that my dear friend David Loy is always talking about these days. Um, in his book, Eco Dharma, he really talks about this, you know, that if these spiritual teachings aren't of any value impact today, what, what relevance are they? And so this, this, this question, if I'm hearing you properly, Sally, I, two things come to mind. One is, it's a little bit like the, uh, the, the, the container thing, you know, meditation per se, because it's so subtle, it does not have the power to stop a train, right? You know, and so these people, if I'm understanding you, that want to take over the country with violence, our meditation will not do anything for them because it's, it's like trying to stop a tank with a fly swatter. Yes, we are communicating on very, very deep, deep, subtle levels, but they, these people are working and operating out of such loud dimensions that we're whispering and they're shouting. They're not going to hear what we're doing. So on this kind of cosmic level, meditation is not going to stop a revolution. Meditation is not going to stop the takeover of Tibet. It just won't. Um, because, you know, what you're trying to stop is already so gross, so loud, so in motion, it's ineffectual. Um, and even then, I have to throw maybe a tiny little caveat that maybe something could possibly be seated, but I think hopefully you're getting what I'm saying. The second thing is um, what it will do from our side, again, is by doing meditation from our side, we will in fact be able to listen more directly to ourselves, which means that therefore we will be more able to listen to others more directly in a responsive way instead of a reactive way. If we can't do that, that gives, result, gives rise to war. Let, you know, if there's no communication at these subtle and intermediate bandwidths, then you communicate in the grossest way, which is violence. So meditation has tremendous efficacy, transformative power, but not in, in conventional, you know, kind of thermonuclear ways. Um, it's working at a bandwidth and dimension of being that just operates, um, you know, kind of below the radar, so to speak. But to say, to, you know, to say that it's somehow ineffectual, 
you can't really do that either. You know, it's just a matter of, this is why integral approaches to transformation are super important. This is also where understanding the four karmas, the types of actions that are associated with meditation is so important that you can't fall, this is me, you can't fall or we should be careful not to fall into single action biases. You know, sociologists talked so much about this that, oh, if I just meditate, it's gonna change the world. Well, no, no. It's meditation conjoined with blah, blah, blah. The integral approach, that's gonna change the world. But meditation is going to change you. And because your narrative and your structure is the same, as every living sentient um, being on this planet, every other human being, their stories are different, but the structure of mind is the same. You understand your heart mind, you're going to understand the heart mind of everybody. And this is why the Dalai Lama says over and over and over, everybody just wants to be happy. We all have these foundational human trajectories. And if we really understand that, then we'll know that people that are doing these really bizarre things are really doing that I mean, they can rationalize it away. They're doing it to achieve their versions of happiness. But those versions of happiness may not be terribly skillful. They may not be resonant with reality. And that's where the problems start. So I'm going to let that go for now. Sally, if you're here and want to say more about it, that would be awesome. And in the meantime, I want to open it up. Uh, there are a couple more written ones, but I want to take a couple live ones. And then I can come back and there's um, a couple more written ones. Okay. All right, so first we'll bring in Ted and then Keenan. Hey, Andrew. Hey, bud. Um, uh, uh, definition is, are the threefold impurities the same as object permanence? Object permanence? Yeah, it's something that I've, you know, two of my teachers for years kept talking about, oh, you've got object permanence. And what, what that is, is, you know, I'm sitting here looking out my window and there's my Tahoe sitting there. <laughs> okay. I turn away, I close my eyes and you've talked about this a lot. Yeah, right. And then I turn, you know, I close my eyes and this is where they say that you're stuck on object permanence, that that Tahoe is still. Oh, yes. Yes. In that case, true. It's just a, a phrase I'm not that familiar with. That's called naive realism. Um, but, uh, but that's the same thing. So object permanence, eternalism, naive realism. Yes. Um, so anyway, now that I understand what you're talking about. Okay. So, you know, I've, been doing this for years and years and years and I still you know th that I've done the intellectual tearing down that Tahoe you know that it's made up of parts and you know infinite causes and conditions has brought it there but still when I look at it the first instance that's my Tahoe and then I overlay you know, I overlay the intellectual and the, the, the contemplative understanding that that, in fact, is empty, and then it comes back to me. And so in an attempt to not to ramble on too long, I've written this down, which is leads to this. Okay. You know, um, 
there's this is this arising frequently is seems like it's a illusory battle between an illusory ego and my illusory patience is leading to an illusory sense of discouragement and futility. That's said with tremendous illusory elegance. <laughs> so, so what's, what's, what's the actual final question there? I, first of all, I agree with pretty much everything you said, but what, is there a final question? Like why, I, I guess still, just, you know, why is it still your Tahoe? No, I, I guess it's just, you know, I mean, my, my attitude has always been just keep on keeping on just doing the practices to the best of my ability and to continue the, you know, the, 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 the learning, the, you know, contemplations and the meditations. Um, but, you know, there, there's a, there's definitely at times there's a, a strong discouragement of like, totally. You know? Yeah. So the, the, yeah, exactly. So, the discouragement comes from um, the lower bandwidth, remember? So this is important, you know, um, you've heard me talk about this, but I've added a little bit more refinement on it. You know, we, we exist, remember I, I always used to talk Ted about, um, it's not just me, a lot of people do it. It's, you know, we talk, we exist along the spectrum of development, right? Um, and this spectrum is, is both vertical and horizontal. This is the added new dimension that, that it's not just me at one kind of horizontal development level. It's also vertical. So it's, it's translational and transformational. And by that, what I mean is you're going to always get these voices from the lower frequencies, the devolutionary end of your spectrum of being that's going to be defeatist. It's going to, that's going to whisper in your ear, all these sorts of things. You know, you're, you can't do this. You don't have time for this. You're too stupid. You're too blah, blah, blah. We all have, infinite egoic listening exactly it's all poverty mentality it's all egoic poverty mentality and it's extremely powerful and insidious because it's so deeply woven into the fabric of our being and so then what we do this is why it's so helpful to understand spectrum of uh, spectrums of identity so that when you have those voices you don't listen to them you just don't pay attention to them you know the path is about what to accept and what to reject reject that or don't you don't have to reject it but just don't pay attention to it realize that oh there's just that there's just that devolutionary caboose coming back to play because until you know until we make the transformation and purify all those habits until we purify all that karma that frequency is still going to be there it's still going to pop up that's going to happen all the way to buddhahood it just gets weaker and weaker you may notice this it's not as loud it's not as constant but it's still whispering back there and eventually you get to the point where you, you don't listen to it enough. It's just that karma is purified. That will stop. Um, so, I, you know, I think that's the most important thing, develop a sense. And then also remember the Lojong training slogans, you know, give up all hope for fruition. Mm -hmm. You know, journey without goal. You just do it because it needs to be done. You just do it because it's the right thing to do. That, by the way, is enlightened activity. That's enlightened activity, free from motivation for results, free from motivation for applause. Another one, you know, don't expect, don't expect applause. Mm -hmm. You just do it because it's the right thing to do. And then the most important thing is just like, you know, the gait of the elephant, just steady, steady. You just keep going. And then eventually 
the processes work. The purification takes place. It may not happen on the rapid fire Western speed track that we all want. That's why people say, screw this. But something is happening, you know, using a different framework. You're, you're emptying out the alia, the eighth consciousness. That transformation is taking place. It just may not happen as quickly as we slash ego expects. And why? Because that ambition itself is driven partly by egoic imperatives. So you get this conflict of interest. That type of ambition can actually be egoically driven. And so then that'll take you up to a certain point where then the, the cognitive dissonance, so to speak, comes in. So um, something like that, my friend, if that makes sense. Good. Thank you. Yep. Always nice to see you. Okay, we'll bring in Keenan, then Amy and Evelyn. Hey, hi, Andrew. Hey, bud. Uh, just a quick question. I think earlier you were um, talking about um, karmic, uh, uh, the way we relate to people is, is uh, somehow karmic. And I had a question about that. Okay. Uh, particularly in the context of uh, family and people I know that I've been observing for some time, how each relationship is very specific, the way I relate and uh, the way there are certain needs. And that, and, and, and that is somehow, um, it's hard to rationalize sometimes. So I, I just wanted to, by rationalize, I mean like um, just thinking about it that in the past, this and this happened and that's why there's that connection. It's gotten pretty obvious for me in certain relationships where I just honor, uh, the the not so obvious contract and try to navigate the best way on how those certain needs can be fulfilled and i guess uh, my question is do you have any um thoughts or ideas on how best to relate um in these contracts one last thought that i have is that i've been trying to sense in certain familiar relationships what is the need that needs to be fulfilled and how best uh, can I relate there and not necessarily come from um, tendencies or established ways of, of relating. So I'm, try I'm trying to discover um, what, what are the needs that need to be filled and what, are, what is the best way to go about that? So any thoughts about yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. So a couple things. Um... One is that, yeah, you know, a couple of things come to mind. One is that um, somebody came to Ted's question that, you know, this, these sorts of things are very interesting to me. Um, it's a little bit like one of the stages in dream yoga where we work in the dream state to alter our manifestation. Um, and the reason we do that is because we want to develop and increase flexibility and identity so that we in fact are highly chameleon creatures. We, we, you know, we are always manifesting either overtly or covertly independent on external circumstance. Um, that's, that's part of life. But what we want to do is transform that usually unconscious process because most of what takes place there, and this is where buttons get pushed. Um, I'm really interested in the button pushing thing right now. Like why, why, why do people press my buttons? Why, why does this particular event press my button? Well, if I look at certain things very closely, I realize that the first time I encountered this person or this situation, there were no buttons being pressed because there was no history. There was, there was no unconscious predisposition. I was relating to the experience in a pure beginner's mind. Nothing was being pressed. I was just there. 
But eventually with history and relationships, more conditioning is, is brought about, more imputations, hopes, fears, and then more and more of the experience becomes unconscious till it gets to the point. And this, this, this fact alone is extraordinarily revelatory and humbling that 95% of what we do is driven by unconscious processes. I mean, think about that. Less than 5% is actually fresh. 95% is stained by conditional histories, you name it. And this is why the tiniest little tweak can send you off the rails because there's, there's so many buttons that are being, you know, things that are being released. So what we do there is first of all, holy moly, have I completely polluted all my friends, all my relatives, all my whatever, with all my hopes and fears and histories. And so they, these people are pushing all my damn buttons because I have given them the power to push those buttons. So the first thing we do is just this amazing humble pie. It's like, oh, I am so sorry that I continue to just vomit all over you with my 95% of I know not what I do, right? So that alone is, it, first of all, it's so pathetic, it's hysterical. And it's tremendously humbling, right, for me. And I do this all the time now because I have a lot of people that press my buttons and my buttons are being pressed all the time. And so it's, it's painful, it's humbling. It's like, oh my God, I am just project, I projected this entire world. And that's why, you know, that projection comes back to haunt me. And that's why all these people, they don't have that power. They're pressing my buttons. And so I, now I use that. I use, okay, Lord, this poor person, they don't stand a chance with me anymore, right? I've so infected them with my unconscious projections, I can't even see that underneath it is this hurting human being. I can't even see that underneath it is a person just like me, hurting, wanting to be happy because I've completely plastered them with all my junk, right? So that alone is colossal. That alone is really humbling and revelatory. And so now, when somebody presses my buttons or whatever, and again, like, does this happen like every day? I take ownership for that. I take responsibility. You know, it's like I, I often say, pardon the, the play on words, we're constantly pinching ourselves and looking elsewhere for the prick. Well, we're the prick, double entendre intended, right? So let's work with a little humility, psychological purification, spiritual purification, take the ownership, return the projection. That's what shadow work is about owning up the projections. Everything is a projection until you're a Buddha. So that's one thing. The second thing very practically is that um, one cart, you know, general rule is instead of being so self-centric, we all are, I'm not blaming you. As long as we have a body, we have an ego, as long as we identif identify with I, me, mine, we're, we're, that's our default. So one way to do that is, is start putting other people in front of you. You know, it's actually one way to, to gauge progress on the path. It's, it's no longer slowly starts to shift from this, okay, you know, what can I get out of this person? How can I profit? You know, this me, 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 me mentality. When you start to grow up and wake up on the path, that starts to shift from what can I get out of it to how can I help? What can I do here? What can put the other person first? Shut up listen to them, be there for them, serve them. And then when you talk about needs to be fulfilled, um, well, at a certain point, you know, this is where Maslow's hierarchy of needs really comes in. You know, at a certain point, 
you pass the threshold of the deficiency needs spectrum where it's not about me. Biologically, it has to be on one level to grow survival instinct. Oh, this is where you know, the hierarchy of needs is super helpful. At a certain point, when all your needs have been fulfilled, then you enter second tier hierarchy of needs where it's abundance needs. It's not deficiency needs because there's no deficiency anymore. Now, everything you do because you're living not from a poverty mentality, but from an inherent wealth mentality, you realize, hey, I really am the Buddha or whatever. Then everything is, there's no needs for you because there isn't a you. Every need, so to speak, is to help others. That's the, that's the abundance hierarchy. Then you just share, share, give, offer, give, offer. So great question as usual, amigo, something like that. Okay, bud? Well, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Okay, so a couple of written ones and then we'll come back. These are quick. Good question as usual. So from Nicole, is Vajrasattva yoga guru yoga? <clears throat> well, Nicole, it depends on what level of Vajrasattva are you talking about? Um, Vajrasattva yoga can be a guru yoga, um, but it depends on which one you're talking about, which one you're doing. Vajrasattva is, is a unique yadam. Um, this is a celestial kind of, you can, you can, a little bit technical for tantrikas. Um, Vajrasattva is, is a, a Sambhogakaya level uh, presentation, yadam, deity. You could look at it as a guru, uh, no doubt, <clears throat> but this is Sambhogakaya level. It's not physical harmonicaya level guru. So if you're, if you're doing Vajrasattva guru yoga, you can look at it as a guru yoga. Um, that's not, it's kind of overt specific kind of bandwidth, but it has that, you know, basically on one level, as they say, virtually every tantric level has a, a tantric level practice has a guru yoga component. So I would have to get you online to see which guru yoga that you're actually doing. I mean, which Vajrasafa that you're actually doing. Usually Vajrasafa is what's called the Yidam practice. And there's a slight difference, even though they're all fundamentally the same, there's a little difference between the Yidam and the guru. And so I'll, I'll let that one go unless you wanna come back on because I think it's a, it gets a bit technical, but everything can become, can become the guru. I mean, Thich Nhat Hanh, there's this beautiful, I think it was Thich Nhat Hanh, has this beautiful image that in a certain way he relates um, to everything that way, that he actually, he will bow, he'll bow to a tree, he'll bow to a car. I mean, he just, he's like bowing to everything. And again, I, I think it's Thich Nhat Hanh, I'm not 100% sure, where he, he basically relates to the entire world as symbolic guru. So on one level, and it's kind of beautiful in its own way, right? You can relate to every phenomenal rising in this capacity. But if you have a more technical aspect to that, you're welcome to come back on. So from Tim, and then we'll go back to a live one. Why do you think that we experience the three states of waking, dreaming, and deep sleep as separate distinct states? Is lucid dreaming a hybrid state of two of them? And which one is the most important? Yeah, good question, Tim. Well, we experience the three states of waking, dreaming, and deep sleep as separate because we're not awake enough. Um, we still have not attained the kind of foundational lucidity awareness that allows us to see the inseparability of all three states. So from an awakened perspective, there's no difference. 
from an awakened perspective, waking, sleeping, dreaming, dying, all the same, no difference. So we experience these things as distinct simply because of, of somewhat tied into some of the earlier questions because of our egoic um, developmental structure, our wake centricity, our photocentricity, our sight centricity. There's all kinds of centricities all in the service of egocentricity that, you know, so to speak, forces us to see these states as, indis as distinct because we're just not sensitive and open enough to realize they're not. And the reasons for that are huge, but I'll let that go. Is lucid dreaming a hybrid state? It is, depending on who you talk to. My friend Stephen LaBerge hates that term. Um, I know a lot of other people say lucid dreaming is a hybrid state where the conscious mind can meet the unconscious mind, waking, dreaming together. So um, I personally am okay with talking about it as a hybrid state. Stephen doesn't like that term. Um, which one is the most important to us? They're all the same. They're, they have this, you know, fundamentally, they're all equally important. We, for a number of reasons, um, just kind of reify, impute, strengthen one state over the other for all kinds of developmental purposes, actually. But uh, fundamentally, one is not more important than the other. They're fundamentally uh, equanimous in nature. Okay, so there's two more, but I'll pause again and, and take a couple live ones before I get these two written ones, okay? Okay, so we'll bring in Amy and then Evelyn. Hi, hello, Andrew and everyone. Hi. Hi. Oh, beautiful, <laughs> beautiful tankas. Oh, thank you. Thank thank you. Buddha. And I, I can't quite uh, make, is that Parjana Paramita or, or Avalokita? No, no, Marjorie. Uh, Majuri. Oh, Majushri. Uh, yeah, yeah. I Majuri. couldn't see the sword up there. Yeah, oh, but you cool. can see the gold, right? You can yeah. see the gold because Majuri, he like gold. Yeah, <laughs> that's gold the, that's yellow. Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah. Yeah, cool. and it's a forearm, forearm, not just two arms. So oh wow! Arm. Very yeah. special. I love it. Thank you. Oh, thank you. So my question is um, of um, to you is. Um, about nidra in yoga and uh, yeah. yes and the dream yoga i know sometimes we say nidra yoga some like sleep yoga so i want to know the difference between these two because um one uh so about one month ago i i i just have this nidra yoga and uh, per performed by my teacher and that is uh induced by a guided meditation yes so yeah so so in that uh, nidra yuga i feel relief stress and it is also like kind of uh hypnosis stage so but i know that it's a different because hypnosis is reducing awareness right what's reducing awareness yoga nidra no 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 the hypnosis oh hypnosis yeah Oh, okay. Yeah, that oh, part. So, that... Yeah. So, so my 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 question is uh, is um, so what's the difference between this uh, nidra yoga and also the uh, dream yoga? What's yes. the difference between? Them? Yeah, there's a pretty big difference actually. Yeah. So, uh, first of all, yoga nidra classically comes from the Hindu tradition. It's a beautifully powerful practice. Um, and again, it, it gets confusing because nidra means sleep. 
And so you sleep, you hear about yoga nidra, you think it's the same as sleep yoga. It's not. Um, it's the same word used in two different ways. So yoga nidra is a really beautiful, and I've done it. Um, I have dear friends who teach like um, Richard Miller and his IRS teachings, fantastically powerful stuff. In our schema, uh, the way I present it and the way I, you know, from the kind of Tibetan approach, yoga nidra is actually the most closely aligned to liminal dreaming. So the very first thing I talked about over an hour ago, yoga nidra is more about liminal dreaming than it is any of the other nocturnal practices. So it's a very beautiful, powerful, guided meditation, relaxation thing that is, is connected to what's called lucid sleep onset, um, which is also uh, connected to liminal dreaming. It's, it's not the same as dream yoga. It's definitely not the same as sleep yoga. So what, what is common to them, here's the commonality, is that yoga nidra, at least up to a certain point, is actually designed to help cultivate awareness, a more sensitive, refined awareness to this kind of descent into this pre-sleep state. And so in that regard, it has a, it's a wonderful preparatory practice to dream yoga because it helps maintain a thread of awareness as you go through this kind of diminution of awareness. But it's definitely not the same as, as dream yoga. What you can do, and again, this is where the stuff all gets interesting, is that even though these practices are, are um, separated for practice purposes, for, for teaching purposes, they also have a lot of interrelationship because you're basically working with mind. So you can't just slam the door shut and say that yoga nidra has nothing to do with dream yoga, has nothing to do with sleep yoga. That's a little bit too extreme. They do have connections, but by definition, they're not the same. They're talking simply about different bandwidths of experience in this kind of nocturnal arena. Does that make sense? So, so for the dream yoga, we have the deeper awareness or conscious. Could, could we say that? Yes, absolutely. So that's a, that's a really good point. So one way to look at it is that in this, you know, in my system, um, there, I have like five steps that progressively go deeper. The first step, the, the, and again, I don't mean it in a negative way. I just mean it in a descriptive way. The first and shallowest step is yoga nidra or liminal dreaming. Then a little bit deeper is lucid dreaming. A little bit deeper than that is dream yoga. A little bit deeper than that is sleep yoga. A little bit deeper than that is bardo yoga. Okay. So you could okay. say liminal, you could say yoga nidra is on one end, bardo yoga is on the other. But with that said, there are, you know, little ways that they do obviously all interconnect, but in terms of like mapping them out for practice and teaching purposes, that's one way to do it. Okay. Thank okay. you so much. Yeah, you're <laughs> okay. welcome so much. Okay. All right. Next we'll bring in Evelyn. Hey, Andrew. Hi. Um, I'm wondering if I can get a clarification on the schedule for the Lucid Dream Workshop tomorrow. Oh, okay. So, sure. yeah, so um, the email that was sent out to the registered students, um, I am one of them, says okay. that we're starting at 10 o'clock Eastern, but then on andrewholacek.com, it says that we're, we're starting at 9 o'clock Eastern. 
Oh, well, we have to fix that. That's a boo-boo on our part. Okay, so it's going to start at 10. Yeah, we, they wanted to start at 9. <clears throat> and then I said, well, think about the people on the East Coast. That's 6 o'clock. That's too early. So I made them bump it up. In fact, I think, yeah. So we bumped it up to 10 o'clock Eastern. That's the correct time. And I, I thank you for telling me that because um, I need to get that corrected on my site. Okay. okay. And um, can you also say if we're going to have breaks? So I roughly can plan. No breaks. You, you have to, it, it's going to go for, for 36 hours straight. <laughs> break. It's going to be like the old ESC programs. No, of course. So we're going to go, the morning sessions will be about three hours uh, with a half hour of Q and A at the end. Okay. At each half, we, we will never go longer than an hour and a half. At every okay. hour and a half, we take a, a, a probably a 10 to 15 minute break. Um, so the morning sessions from 10 to 1.30, and then we come back and do another three hour session um, after that, depending okay. on where you are time zone wise. Okay. Yeah, can I also make a quick comment on the oh, totally. discussion Please. on buttons earlier? Yeah, so yeah. I really, yeah, I was uh, really enjoying the conversation you were having with Keenan about how certain people come into our lives and push our buttons. And I was yeah. reminded of the AA quote that's like, um, how come your family knows how to push your buttons? And it's because they installed them. That's, a, that's it, bingo. Yeah, and it's, I'm wondering, so I work in geriatric care, um, yeah. mostly sort of private home care. And I observe a lot of these kind of dynamics going on, especially around Alzheimer's patients where you know, children of, of patients with Alzheimer's, they'll really have their button pushed, but as an outsider and someone who's not as involved, it really just seems like, you know, the, the patient is asking for something. Uh, totally. Uh, right. Yeah. And so, yeah, so, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, like, how much of this button installation has to do with our samskaras, because it doesn't seem like you know, like a patient can ask me the same thing. hundred percent. hundred percent. The button push. Thank, thanks for bringing that up. Uh, the button pushing and the installation of the samskara, samskaras are basically the same bloody thing. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah, yeah. Right. Great questions. Thanks, Great comments. See you this weekend. Cool. Okay, so uh, another live one, and then I'll get another written one. Sure. Now this is a Kroyak. hope I said that right. Hi there. Hello. Hmm, you're unmuted, but we can't hear you. All right. She can type it in. Yeah. Yeah, you can type your, your question. Type it in. Okay. Um, nothing else queued up then. Oh, cool. All right, so there's a couple. There's a couple written, and maybe she can come back on. So from Virginia, since we're taking a conceptual approach to learning, what is ultimately non-conceptual, and since our ability to become awakened beings depends on causes and conditions, i.e., forces beyond our control, intentions and practice, and since we live in what I have heard to as the age of decline where I've heard also that enlightenment is impossible. It's not impossible, it's just hard. How do we practice and keep ourselves uplifted and committed despite all the obstacles along the way? 
this is a very, very challenging world to be living in at this moment. Yeah, boy, that's no kidding, huh? Well, here's the deal. Um, great question, Virginia. Great comments. Um, yeah, there's a whole lot of forces of the dark side, right? Working against us. I mean, that's evolution. That's just the way it works. So we can approach this in, in several different ways. Um, I personally elect to live and practice under the, the kind of the maxims of both the alchemical and the tantric traditions, um, which both proclaim um, you can transform obstacle into opportunity. Hence the alchemy, right? Led to gold kind of thing. That yes, this is a very challenging time, but it's also an extremely opportune time. It's the same thing that applies towards the bardos. The death and dying is a very challenging time, but the traditions are radically unequivocal that there are more opportunities for rapid psycho-spiritual development in the bardos than there are in life for a number of reasons. One is, in fact, there, it's in direct proportion to the level of the challenge. So the question is, are we up for the challenge? And, and so if we maintain the right view, this is where right view, Virginia, is so important. If we maintain the right view, which is the anti-physicalist, materialist, reductionist view, which is the view of, of, of divinity, purity, goodness, right view, that fundamentally the nature of whatever arises is in fact, if it's seen properly, if you're lucid to it, just tied into the earlier questions, it's already the Buddha. What you're saying, what you're saying is already the pure land. So the, the challenge is not to be swept away by the power of the inculcated wrong view that, that it's like, it's hopeless, I can't do it. There's so many things going against me. If we capitulate to that, then it's, it's kind of somewhat sad affair, but we don't have to. This is why right view is the first and most important of the eightfold factors of the awakened space, of the awakened path, is maintaining this, this, this um, proper view of things. And if you do that, then you realize, I mean, Bruce Lipton was riffing about this a lot these days. This guy's a pretty sharp cookie. And um, you know, one of the fathers of the whole epigenetic movement is really, I think, pretty brilliant biologist. And he's talking more and more about, you know, and again, this is not him, he's just articulating it. You know, crisis sparks evolution. Let me say that again. Crisis triggers evolution. And so we are in a crisis. And so this is the way evolution works. You know, look at dissipative structures. You, you, there's so many ways where you can gain support with this view that before things transform into a higher dimension, you have to exhaust the translation of the existing dimension. And so before you can you know, move up, you have to break down. Before you can break through, you have to break down. And what's happening now is, is a lot of breakdown. Um, and, we can, and we can capitulate to the negativity around it. That's literally what Trump Rinpoche called negative negativity, or we can transform it. Um, and so uh, that's one reason I love the, the tantric approach, that if you look at these things properly, there are actually more opportunities now than if things were all kosher and running smoothly. That's when everybody just falls further, further into sleep, when we just drip off into our God realm comfort plans. It's really when things are falling apart, that things get really tricky, that we have a chance to really look at this collective deconstruction 
and actually see, you know, maybe I'm going to create a new narrative. Maybe I'm going to grow in a new way. Maybe I'm going to take this and really grow with it. So I, I'm not at all, sometimes they get a little discouraged about what's happening to the planet. That's really heartbreaking and all the animals, that's really heartbreaking. But um, I maintain to the best of my ability, this, this view of the inherent goodness of the world, the inherent, inherent um, purity of reality. And I fundamentally have elected to abide by those principles. Um, yeah, so that's just me, that's my riff. So one last one from Vanessa and then, then we'll call it for today. Oh, perfect timing. Okay, so last one. There is something that has been happening for a long time and I haven't really given it much thought until now where I am giving my dream life a, a lot of attention. My non-lucid dreams will have a consistent look and feel in terms of visual and auditory sensation. Well, what has happened many, many times over the years, which is a little unsettling, is right before I wake up, I will hear sound really loudly and really clearly as if someone is talking right by my ear, as if it was real. The thing is, I live alone, so no one else is there. And there's no other sounds happening in my room, in my bedroom, um, that my brain could be interpreting and weaving into the dream. When this happens, I always wake up a little shocked by how loud and clear the sound was. And that there's no one, and that there's no one or nothing in the room with me that could have made that sound. Is there maybe a misfire in my brain or auditory system that is mistakenly translating dream images into waking life sound? Or is this an auditory version <coughs> of projecting dream sound into waking world sound, like where people who sometimes wake up very quickly project the visual aspects of their dream onto the waking world for a second or two. I think it's the latter. I think it's the latter. Because if you think it's the former, you can put a recorder on. Um, you could actually see, let's see here. Yeah, it, it, I'm pretty sure it's, it's the former because I've had experiences like this as well where you can have, um, again, you don't have to have an ear to hear. You don't have to have eyes to see. You don't. In fact, I just have to throw this into the mix. This is pretty cool. Total sidebar. Um, reading, I was reading a little bit about the, you know, the whole chakra system and the third eye thing. And there's reports of people who literally, when their third eye is so open, they can literally blindfold them completely blindfold them and these people can read. I mean, how cool is that? I want to be able to do that at a cocktail party. That's my, how pure my motivation is. Silly sidebar. I have had these experiences, Vanessa, where you do not have to have an ear uh, or external sounds to hear. I mean, you can have thunderous sounds in the dream state, just like you're going to have thunderous sounds in the Bartle state after death. There's no physical ear there, but these sounds still appear. The phenomenology is not always reducible into these kind of neurological terms. It can have a different kind of substrate. So I have had these. I've also had you know, visual experiences similar to what you're saying at the end that seem to kind of bleed through into the waking state. So I, I personally wouldn't be too wigged out about this. Um, it's mostly unsettling, like when sleep paralysis takes place, it's unsettling because we generally don't know what it is. But these types of kind of hybridized spaces, and again, this, this happens um, usually in that liminal space. In this case, it would be a hypnopompic liminal space, you know, after the dream um, space entering into the waking space. That's the hypnopompic space. 
you can get these kind of bleed through experiences where you have a trailer from your dream, you know, kind of hybridizing into this um, uh, you know, kind of intermediate dimension of mind. So my intuition is that's what it is. I wouldn't be terribly concerned about it. Um, with that said, however, if it does get worse and you are concerned, and I always put this as a disclaimer, um, you could always visit with an audiologist, ear, nose, throat person or a neurologist to see if in fact there is something organic taking place. I never rule that out. Um, it doesn't sound like it to me and I'm very cautious. I'm not making you know, kind of clinical diagnoses here. But if these, if these things tend to happen like tinnitus or uh, that's a different beast, there very often are organic circumstances, brain issues and the like. Doesn't sound like it to me. So in short, with the information that I have here, that's my best guess. Um, I think what you said at the very end sounds like what's really happening here. Okay, hey, thanks everybody. Appreciate your time and attention until next week or until tomorrow or until whatever. Pleasant dreams, all the best. And we'll, we'll touch base again next week. Bye.